Freedom fighters, freedom lovers, and those who just want stuff for free. Greetings and hello. It is I, your favorite obscure social studies teacher. With just enough expertise to make things interesting, Mr. Palumbo, and this is the Professor Liberty Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, folks. I'm glad you're here. I appreciate you. I know you can be doing other things, but you've decided to listen to my ramblings and my occasional musings over different topics. If you'd like to email the show, the email is ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. That's Professor Liberty 1776 at gmail.com. Send me your thoughts, your ideas, your personal philosophies, your expressions, your equations, your evaporations. What? Whatever. Just send them to Professor Liberty 1776 at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on Facebook Messenger if you would like. And many of you guys, that's what you like to do. You know, sometimes your guys' comments and questions and, uh, you know, whatever you guys hit me with, sometimes that sparks material for future episodes. So you guys have a direct influence on this podcast. Man, oh man, I have to confess, it has been a bear trying to write a podcast. I wanted to get one more episode out before July hit, and here we are six or seven days into July, and uh, that didn't happen. I've had so many ideas, and I've even written entire episodes, only to later not be so excited about it. I really admire those podcasters that can create daily content. This has to be challenging. Well, maybe it's not super challenging for those who just go off of current events. I guess if you just let the information carry you along, uh, it's not as hard. But another thing here at Professor Liberty I was thinking about is this podcast is difficult to nail down genre-wise. Is it a historical podcast? Yes. Is it an educational podcast? Sure. But it's also a podcast about society, family, freedom, as well as politics. We talk about parenting on this show. So it's a social studies hodgepodge, you might say. And so maybe that is a little more challenging, or maybe I'm just too, uh, you know, too lack, lacking of the focus to get the podcasts out. Anyways, on to the show. Today I wanted to dive into economics. It's been a while since we've had an episode on economics, and I've been trying to put some things together, and again, it's just been kind of chaotic. I am working on a globalization podcast, for example. But if you know economics, it's a tricky subject. I mean, it's not called the dismal science for no reason. One thing to remember when studying economics is keep it simple. You know that old saying, keep it simple, stupid. I tell this to my students, and and this is going to be the theme of today's show, keeping it simple. Rely on the bedrock theories. And don't be like the multiple-degreed so-called experts and try to muddy the waters. You don't have to make this complicated. Is it complicated? Yes, because economics has many moving parts, and they're all moving at the same time. You know, a couple days ago, I posted on the Facebook page a quote, and this is from, I'm going to mess up his name, Ephraim Bemelech. And he wrote, whenever you have an important economic question, it is unlikely that there will be only one explanation. Economics is about 
people making decisions. Millions of people making decisions all at the same time. And so sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on and it's hard to get a clear answer, but keep it simple. Learn the simple principles of basic classical economics and you can get through some difficult questions. Now, one thing we have to realize, okay, when it, humans are biased. Nobody's perfect. Humans are biased and we all bring our biases to the table. In many cases, these so-called intellectuals, like on Fox News and all these cable channels, they like to use the complex nature of economics to bloviate and pontificate on how this needs to be done and that needs to be done and so on and so forth. In most cases, these experts end up just advocating for more government, which is, if we really understood economics, they would know that whatever the issue, whatever the challenge, economically speaking... Government intervention is always more expensive and less efficient. This is just a fact. This is not a political point I'm trying to make. History and economics back this up. You can look at the data from years when they've tried these things. Whatever the short-term boost to the economy you get from government intervention, in the long run, it only leads to more inflation and unemployment, among other things. So how do we know this? How can I make this statement? How can I tell you it's not a political? Well, I mean, it is political. When they advocate for government, it is political. I'll get to that. But how can I say that this is just a fact, that government intervention makes things worse? Well, like I said, history provides a plethora of examples. But we know, in essence, remember, keeping it simple, making those bedrock, learning those bedrock principles. We know, in essence... Because we've discussed this all the way back in episode 7 of this podcast. And that was entitled, The One Thing About Government That Is Always True. Anybody remember what that is? The one thing about government that is always true is that government is inherently inefficient. Now, as soon as I say that, folks who love government start hemming and hawing. No matter what they say, this remains a fact. This is not a Republican or Democrat issue, okay? Well, mostly it's a Marx issue, but we'll get to that a little bit later. But if you hear that term, if you hear this statement that government is inherently inefficient and you have a bad knee-jerk reaction, you have to figure out why you have a bad knee-jerk reaction. And then the burden of proof is on you to show me where I'm wrong. To show me where government is efficient, show me anywhere in society or history where you've given money to government and they've done something better than you could have done or a private business could have done on their own. But how do we know that governments are inherently inefficient? Well, we have to talk about something called the profit motive. Governments lack a profit motive. Now, what is that? Well, a profit motive is just like it sounds. It's a desire to make a profit. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. If I start a business, I'm taking on a lot of risk. I'm taking out loans that have to be repaid. I'm buying supplies. I'm buying equipment. Uh, I might be hiring people, which means I have to, in some cases, offer other benefits, which is going to cost me money. Once my business is up and running, I have to keep my overhead low. And this is where the efficiency comes in. If I make bad decisions... If I don't price my product or service right, 
Or if the government comes in and arbitrarily shuts me down for six months, hello, 2021 and 2020. As a business owner, I assume all of that risk. If I run out of money, if I don't turn a profit, my business goes under. Now, let me ask you a question. Does any of what I just said happen to the government? Does it go out of business? Does it run out of money? Does it ever shut down? Of course not. Therefore, it has no incentive to be efficient. And coincidentally, it rarely is. Now, you can see this when you compare public schools and private schools. I've worked in both. Public schools receive constant stream of money from local government. Private schools are tuition-based. If a student leaves public school, their budget remains the same more or less. While if a private school loses too many students, their budget can take a major hit and they could possibly close down. This means, unlike public school, the private school has an incentive to be efficient. They must keep parents happy. They must provide a quality education at a competitive price. Public school has no incentive. Why? Because whether they're good or bad, money keeps flowing in. So why do people... Why do experts, you know, these highly educated economists from places like Harvard and Yale and Columbia, why do they advocate, despite what the facts say, keep saying things and keep advocating for more government action, more government programs, more government interventions? Well, the answer is simple, but it's hard to accept. Uh, You know, these learned economists are letting their bias that we talked about earlier, they're letting their bias influence their thoughts and beliefs. They like government. It's ideological. It's politics. They like government. Their friends at their, at their university like government. If you haven't noticed, most higher education in America is leftist. Not liberal, leftist. And leftists is where you get Stalin. Okay, you get these big government, Mao, Stalin, Marx, they like that stuff. And at college, at the university, you can theorize and pontificate on any theory. And, you know, they don't they don't have to be proven right. They can just write these papers and get published. And they're getting all these accolades from their colleagues because they're all leftists. But here's something I've always this is this has followed me my whole adult life. And I don't know if I've ever been able to articulate it. Another thing about why they advocate for these things, and I'll just say liberalism, but it's leftists, it's leftistism, right? It's governmentism, it's statism, whatever you want to call it. Most liberalism is based on simple emotional sentiments. And they don't take much thought. They sound good. They make you feel good. And it makes everyone happy, okay? For an example, okay, this is not a economic statement, but the liberals would say all roads lead to heaven. Just be yourself. Just follow your heart. Now, most of us like that. That sounds good. It doesn't require anything of me. And uh, it makes everyone happy. Okay, so that would be the liberal approach. The conservative sounds something like this. There's only one way to heaven. You need to repent of your sins. You need to stop doing all those things. To be a good person or you're going to hell. Now, which statement do you think gets more uh, acceptance, right? Obviously, the inclusive, right? 
I don't have to do anything. I don't have to change my ways, right? So that's what liberalism is regarding the economy. I can say things like the rich need to pay more taxes. That sounds good. And it doesn't require anything of me. Well, the challenge with conservative thinking, which is more in line with classical economic thought, is it takes more thinking. It takes more thought. You have to work through it. And some classical economic theories seem counterintuitive at first. So let me give you an example. And I hope you guys are following me here. Please don't hesitate to stop this, rewind it, uh, listen to it multiple times. But here's, here's uh, an example of something that seems counterintuitive until you work it out, okay? Did you know that the more taxes a government takes in, the more taxes it requires, eventually less revenue it will receive? Let me let that stew for a minute. The more taxes a government takes in, eventually the less revenue it will receive. Now, this is a fact. Now, does this make sense? On its face, no. I mean, if I take more money, I should get more revenue. If I require more taxes, I should get more revenue, right? Well, in the short term, you're correct. When a government raises taxes, they do, in the short term, get a, sur a surge of revenue, right? But as those taxes keep going up and up and up, there is a point where the returns diminish and it's actually destructive towards government revenue, if you want, right? Overtaxation stifles incentive to work harder. Now, just think about this in your own life. Why work harder if the government is going to take 50 cents of every dollar? What's the point of me trying to get ahead? What's the point of me trying to engage in the profit motive if the government's just going to take everything? Okay? So this is, it's true. The more taxes, eventually the less revenue. But who's got the time and energy to think through all those things? Certainly not Americans. Now imagine being the conservative candidate for president, let's say. You have to argue this seemingly counterintuitive part, which is true. While the liberal gets to simply say something like, quote, vote for me and I'll raise the taxes on the rich, unquote. Now, who will the ignorant voter, especially the poor ignorant voter, most likely vote for? It takes an educated electorate as well as a well-spoken, classical, economic-minded candidate to articulate these economic truths. Even now, I bet some of you listening still have no idea what I just tried to explain. Now, I'm not calling anyone stupid, of course. I probably uh, just did a poor job trying to articulate these points, but you have to sit down and chew on them. You got to sit down and think about them. And who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. That's why, like I said earlier, you have to master the basic theories. You know, anytime I'm watching the news or reading something online, I'm always trying to break it down to the basic theories. Nine times out of ten, I can read the tea leaves pretty accurately. But the truth is, we're lazy, we don't want to put in the work, and it's easier to just believe the politician who says taxing the rich will bring prosperity. 
You know, this is why I think I've mentioned this on the Facebook page. The platitudes from these politicians are just getting so stupid. I mean, they're getting so, you know, Biden gets to get out there and say, this has been the, uh, you know, what, what was the last one? I've expanded jobs since the Great Depression, the most jobs since the... He can say whatever he wants because nobody's going to call him on it, right? So he can throw out all these ridiculous statistics and no one's going to call him on it because we don't sit down and either we don't know economics or we don't care about economics or we just don't like him because he's a Democrat and we're Republican, right? That tribalism that is infecting our society. Another economic principle that gets smeared easily because people don't understand it is something called supply-side economics. Now, you might know this theory by its pejorative terms, such as voodoo economics, trickle-down economics, or Reaganomics. Uh, these are derogatory terms used by both Republicans and Democrats, by the way. Supply-side economics has been used multiple times by previous presidents, and each brought some kind of economic prosperity. You can look at the 1920s, you can look at uh, Kennedy in the early 60s, and you can look at the 1980s for reference. However, one of the basic tenets of supply-side economics is the idea of taking money out of the government's hands and putting it into individuals' hands. Supply-side economics' basic premise is that by lowering taxes, regulation, and government spending, you unshackle individuals and you provide incentives for them to pursue that profit motive that we've talked about. Okay, so let's unpack this with some basic concepts. Say Johnny, there's a guy named Johnny, and he gets paid $1,000 after taxes. What this means is Johnny's spending power is exactly $1,000. That's what he budgets for and that's his limit. Of course, there's many things Johnny would love to do, and there are many things Johnny would love to buy, but he's limited to his $1,000. Now, imagine if the government lowered his tax burden. Because he's paying less taxes, now Johnny's bringing home $1,500. His spending power has just increased $500. It's almost like he got a raise, isn't it? With this $500, Johnny can now buy things he's always wanted. He could go more places, maybe move into a better apartment or even buy a new house or car. You see that the extra money in Johnny's pocket has a chance to cause a spending spree, which ripples across the economy. Imagine that there are tens of thousands or maybe even millions of Johnnies out there, and they've all got more money in their pocket. Now couple that with less regulation on business, thus lowering the business overhead. This means that businesses can make more goods, invest in more technology, and hire more people. Again, this is going to have a ripple effect across the economy. So let me ask a question. Is Johnny engaging in the profit motive when he wrestles with what to do with his extra $500? Well, sort of. I mean, it's not the profit motive in the sense that he's trying to keep a business afloat, but he is engaged in behavior that attempts to efficiently use his money uh, the best way possible. Again, this is something that the government does not do because it's not their money. The government can waste all the money it wants because it has an endless supply. So if it has been shown that people and businesses can do everything more efficiently than government, and if it has been shown that government waste money 
and government is immune to the demands and dangers of the profit motive, why does supply-side economics get a bad rap? What's with all the disparaging names like voodoo economics and trickle-down economics? Well, the answer to that goes back to what we said first about supply-side economics. What's the first tenet? What is the basic tenet? The basic tenet of supply-side economics is the idea of taking money out of the government's hands and putting it into individuals' hands. Oh, now, boys and girls, if we're paying attention, we can see why supply-side economics gets smeared, even though it's proven to work. The reason nobody likes it is it lessens the intervention and thus the power of the government in the economy, something leftists, elites don't like. If we can show that the economy can boom and people's lives get better without government, folks might start to question why we have government in the first place. Supply-side economics lets people spend their own money and more of their own money, and it advocates for less government involvement, something politicians and the bureaucracy doesn't like. Politicians get their power through your dependence on them. So they disparage supply-side economics and say things like, oh, it's just giving tax cuts to billionaires. This is Marxist language, boys and girls, and it's meant to stoke envy and hate among the ignorant poor against the rich. And like we mentioned earlier, unfortunately, too many people would rather let bitterness and envy be their guide and not sensible, level-headed thinking. Not everyone has the same drive and ambition. And politicians like to exploit this fact to their own advantage. Again, using Marx as their guide, they claim that billionaires are rich because they stole from them. It's not their fault they're poor. Never mind that most billionaires and most successful people are hardworking, very driven, and ambitious people. Not all of them, of course. But most people who are successful and rich are, like I said, very focused and driven. So let's address this issue of rich people. If the government cuts taxes, will millionaires and billionaires get more money back? Of course. But this is because they paid more taxes. So if there's a tax cut, they're going to receive more money back. But I've never understood this thinking that it's a bad thing rich people get to keep their money. How is it, you know, that's a bad thing, but it's somehow virtuous that the government takes from them and gives it to poor people. Isn't that theft? It's like Thomas Sowell said. What exactly is your fair share of someone else's money? This is all Marxist rhetoric, folks. Unfortunately, people eat it up. And didn't we just show that when people have more money, they tend to spend it? So just like old Johnny got an extra $500, Joe Millionaire, he's going to get back, a, let's just say he gets back a hundred grand. Well, what do you think he's going to do with that extra money? Well, just like Johnny, he's going to spend it, at least some of it. And that spending pays for products, which pays for employees, which pays for gas, which pays for groceries, and the waves keep rolling. So in closing, guys, I always like to take things to their inevitable conclusion. You know, these experts like to tiptoe around these ideas of theirs, and no one calls them out on, well, okay, if that's the case, why don't we go all the way? So with every argument against supply-side economics... They're what? They're arguing for government intervention. Okay, so show me where government, more government has brought prosperity.
Show me where more regulation, show me where more government spending has brought economic booms. In fact, show me somewhere the government is more efficient. Show me where the government spends less for services and you get more services and more product. Of course, it's not out there. In fact, if big government brought economic prosperity, places like Cuba, North Korea, and the former USSR would be the Shangri-La of human society. And yet, they're the exact opposite. They're the bane of human existence. Again, why is that? Now, I know I'm sounding like a broken record here, but I'm trying to bring home the point so that you'll remember. The basic fundamental reason is this. People, individuals, can and will always spend their money more efficiently and more carefully than government. This is because they're beholden to the risks inherent in life. Governments are not. People have limited money. Governments don't. People go out of business. Governments don't. People have to pay the price for their bad decisions and poor management. Governments don't. Here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating and a written review. You can go to TeachersPayTeachers.com and look at Professor Liberty activities, lessons, assignments for your homeschool or your classroom. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty. Liberty.